Hey there, listeners. Jesse Brown's producing this week. I'm your guest host, Omar Mualam. This episode of Candleland is brought to you by TunnelBear. With over 100 VPNs in the App Store, choosing how to secure your privacy can be confusing. Simplify your privacy needs with TunnelBear, an easy-to-use app that lets you browse privately, securely, and now you can even try it for free for seven days. Go to tunnelbear.com slash Canadaland to learn more. Support for today's show is also brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move a reality. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code CANADALAND to get 10% off your first purchase. Up until two weeks ago, it felt like we were nearing closure on the Omar Khadr story. In 2002, the 15-year-old was captured in Afghanistan and detained at Guantanamo Bay where he was beaten, used as a human mop to wipe up his own urine, placed in solitary for long stretches of time, and forced to stand trial for killing an American army sergeant in American military court, not fit for Americans themselves. This went on for 10 years before he was repatriated to Canada, where he remained in prison for an additional three years. During this time, he was not allowed to speak to the media, and everything we knew about him we learned second or third hand. When he was finally released, he could speak for himself, and slowly, the limited images of him we'd long relied on in the news, the Gitmo courtroom sketches and night vision videos of him handling IEDs as a child, those slowly gave way to a more wholesome picture of a young man who guilty or not, had undeniably suffered. His humanity was confirmed by a McLean's cover story and the documentary Guantanamo's Child that followed him during his first few days of freedom. Later, we learned that he was studying to become a nurse, and in interviews, he betrayed no venom or bitterness toward Canada or the system that failed him. But that redemptive picture isn't quite compatible with the image of a millionaire. When the government of Canada finally apologized for violating his charter rights and settled his lawsuit for $10.5 million, the vitriol surrounding Cotter flared up in a way we have not seen during this 15-year saga. A political football for now half his life, Cotter's claim to restitution is being punted around by politicians and the public calling it obscene and disgusting and an indication of a weak prime minister bowing down to the enemy. And it's not just people on the right. According to an Angus Reid poll, 71% of all Canadians, including 61% of Liberal voters themselves, oppose the settlement. However, 42% of those same respondents are, quote, not sure or don't know if Cotter was treated fairly. It makes one wonder where Canadians are getting their news. Michelle Shepard may be wondering the same thing. The Toronto Star's national security reporter has been on the case from the start. She's been to Gitmo two dozen times, wrote Guantanamo's Child, the biography on Cotter, and co-directed the documentary of the same name that offered the first look at him as a free man. Yet amid the current social media firestorm, she's still debating the basic facts and wondering why we keep getting such a thoroughly reported story wrong. And this isn't just social media at work, but many of us in the news industry, commentators and reporters, are repeating falsehoods about why he was tried and how he was tried. It's as if the facts themselves are a matter of opinion. Michelle Shepard has had one hell of a week, and we're going to talk to her about it and what it's been like for her reporting on one prisoner, one death, and one single grenade for 15 years. My interview with her in a moment.
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Emma Bocking, Zoe Kahn, Sabrina Barusta, Suzanne Duncan, Julia Nadu, Anne St. Louis, Sean Fettis, and Allison Crosswaite. Allison, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Jesse has a mind of his own, and he has built a platform that allows him and his team to express their thinking. We need more of this. This episode is brought to you by Tunnel Bear. Look, I I travel a lot. I take my laptop everywhere I go, and I end up working out of some pretty unusual places in foreign countries. Just next month, I'm going to Israel and the West Bank and northern Iraq and Kurdistan. And I got to be honest, I don't even know what to be afraid of. I just know that there's so much going on behind those networks that I don't even know about. I do know enough, though, that I want to have some peace of mind. Not everyone wants a VPN for privacy concerns or to get around geographic restrictions, Believe it or not, some people actually want to use them as they were intended, to manage traffic in a secure way. Countless businesses use VPNs every day to work securely in the office or while traveling. But the downside is enterprise-level VPNs can be incredibly expensive and complicated to set up and use. TunnelBear for Teams changes all of that. You can painlessly add your whole team to the account, giving you the ability to easily change, update, and manage users. Without those complicated interfaces or setups by a network admin, TunnelBear for Teams comes with priority support, easy team management, and a lot of bears. So many bears, don't be afraid. Find out more and start your seven-day free trial at tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand. Support for today's show also comes from Squarespace. Look, when I was 14 years old, the first job I ever had was creating websites, and I had to do it by HTML. Kids, you don't know how easy you have it today with Squarespace. I mean, I had to commit all this coding to memory, and I don't even know what to do with it now. A much less nerdier 14-year-old or even 11-year-old could make a beautiful portfolio with Squarespace to showcase their work. I don't know what they would showcase, but maybe you, as a, as a functioning adult, have a portfolio that you want to show a store you want to sell your products and services from, or or just a blog to share your ideas. Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move a reality. With Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. Simply add and arrange your content with the click of a mouse. Just move things around and click, click, click. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CanadaLand to get 10% off your first purchase. Michelle Shepard, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Omar. What kind of a week have you just had? <laughs> um, it has been relentless. I never thought I would get surprised 15 years in about the reaction to a Cotter story. Over the years, I always get a response. It's always very vigorous. It sparks debate. Even what sometimes has been incremental developments in his case. But I was really shocked by the reaction to the news. On one hand, I, I, I do understand. I think the number, the, the settlement amount really hit people. But the level of vitriol and the politicking is something new. As I said, it's always been a controversial case. It's always been a political case. But this time, it really felt like the gloves were off. And some of it's been targeted toward you. You tweeted a picture of your own news article Mail to you, smeared with shit. <laughs> yes. Is this par for the course reporting on Cotter, or is there something else in the air with this development? Well, I, I'm sorry to say I'm not the first reporter, even in our newsroom, to receive a article that appeared to have been used as toilet paper. And yes, over the years, I mean, I've lost the count of the times I've been called the C word or, or a bitch or whatever for reporting on this. 
But I did feel this time, as I said, it was different. It was very personal for those who were covering it, not just me, but others. If you're a female reporter, there's always sort of a, a misogynist or a sexist element to that. And then also just on social media, those who were debating the case on both sides were just being shouted down and, and sometimes with threats even. So it was really it was really violent. It was really ignorant and disappointing. And again, I think that's partly because it was the amount that really shocked people and got people angry. But I do think we've entered a new era where it's so fashionable to attack the media and it's being done south of the border regularly by the president and others. So I think the gloves are off and whatever you want to say is is okay uh, when some of our leaders are saying that. Well, it's not just the vitriol, but the actual ignorance on the case. You revealed a rare moment of opinion for a reporter last week, and that opinion was that you were depressed and frustrated with widespread ignorance about Cotter's case. How would you assess the Canadians' general knowledge on this case, and what facts are being overlooked or misconstrued? So many facts are being overlooked, and you know, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to make this about me in any way. Uh, as I said, others are getting attacked, and and this is about the issue of a really important case in Canada that I've always argued has been about so much more than just Omar Cotter. It's not about a 15-year-old Canadian and an American soldier he allegedly killed. Of course, that's at the core of it, but it's always represented so much more. And that's the reason I've really stuck with it for 15 years and written a book and co-directed a documentary. I mean, it's been a lot of my career. And had it just been sort of a simple narrative, it wouldn't have, frankly, you know, kept my attention or I wouldn't have felt that it's that important a story. But it reflects so much more. And yes, again, these last week and a half, two weeks, I feel like I did this Twitter thread and I was sort of fed up. So I'm like, here are 15 or 16 basic points, starting with he was born in Toronto. He was 15 when he was shot and captured. And I had a really good response to that thread. People saying, oh, thanks so much. And on one hand, great, terrific. I was glad to put some sort of basic facts out there. But on the other hand, I thought, but if you don't even know these facts, then how are you debating this case vigorously? And I go back to it doesn't it doesn't matter what side you're on, what part of this case uh, you feel is just and unjust. But if you're going to debate it and do debate it and make it a political issue and talk to your politicians, but please do it with the basic information. What were some of the facts that you felt like you had to repeat, some of the basic facts? Well, there's just the, the basic ones I said at the beginning, you know, with his age and the fact that he is a Canadian citizen because there were so many tweets saying, you know, go back to your own country. And in fact, there was one uh, liberal MP who later issued a correction saying he was just defending his, his country. Well, he wasn't from Afghanistan. So there were those sort of basic facts that had to be laid out. But I think the other facts that get overlooked, and I appreciate this is this is complicated, but we have written about it and tried to explain a lot of times, are just the, the very uniqueness of this case. His age has always been a huge issue. And there's debate whether or not he's considered a child soldier. Romeo Dallaire, the UN and others have come out and said, yes, he does. Uh, he is classified as that. And there's debate over... Christopher Spear as well and what he is considered. That's right. So those are sort of two of the big 
points that the public is debating, but also, I mean, the military commission, which is the Guantanamo courts were debating and our own courts are debating. And now a Washington court is debating. So I, again, I appreciate it's really complicated. The U.S. rewrote the laws of war after 9-11. And that's the law that's being applied in Guantanamo. And that's the law that's gone to the Supreme Court and continues to be challenged, including in the Cotter case. But again, going back to sort of the historic significance of Omar Khadr's case in particular, if you don't want to call him a child soldier, okay, don't call him a child soldier, but he's the only 15-year-old in modern-day history ever to be prosecuted for a war crime. That's really significant if you think of all young people who have been in conflict around the world. That's significant. And the reason for that is because those under 18 are usually considered child soldiers. And the idea is, yes, they might face sanctions, they might face some time in custody. But as a minor, usually the focus is more towards rehabilitation rather than retribution. Mm -hmm. Michelle, one of the things that keeps being debated over and over again is whether Sergeant Christopher Spear should be considered a medic because he was in combat or not. What is the basic interpretation of that? Well, that's a really important point because you'll see many politicians emphasizing that he is a a medic and, and calling him that. And indeed he was. And from what I understand, he was quite a heroic medic. And a couple weeks before the firefight, he had actually saved two Afghan children who were wounded in a field. But the point is that he was a Delta Force soldier. He was part of an elite unit, and he was the medic on that team. When people traditionally talk about medics, they mean unarmed civilians. And killing a medic in war has always been considered a war crime back, you know, since the Geneva Conventions were drafted. That's not, in this instance, what Christopher Spear was considered. It's not what the Pentagon considered him, and it's not what Omar Khadr was charged with. He was considered a soldier, and the charge that Omar Khadr faced was murder in violation of the laws of war. And in this case, the way that it was drafted in Guantanamo, they meant killing a soldier. Given Canadians' inability to grasp the facts, though, how much of that responsibility do we in the media hold for it? A lot. I'm really, really lucky that the paper I work for, the Toronto Star, backed me in this. I went to Guantanamo 27 times. As I said, a lot of my career was following this case. And so I had the time and the support to do that over the years. And that's tough. I mean, our, our industry is shrinking and resources are, are thin. So it's it's hard to allow somebody who I cover terrorism. I mean, there's lots of issues that I've covered and have traveled around the world. It's hard to devote so much time to that. But I also think what's been interesting in the last two weeks in particular is some of the, the articles that have gone viral are the columns. I mean, name a columnist who hasn't written about this this week. <laughs> and and that's also, that's great if they're well-informed columns, but a lot of times they're not. So people almost are overlooking what we try and do as the traditional tell the story with the facts, try and get in both sides. 
and going towards the columnist usually that they're going to agree with. So if you're against the settlement, you're probably not going to read one that says it was right or the editorials that support it. You're going to find the columnist who supports you. And there's lots on both sides. But I think that just is part of this echo chamber that along with social media, you are just reinforcing your own beliefs without challenging them with a different side of you, point of view. Well, I'd love to say that it was just columnists, but one thing that was pointed out to us by a listener was the reappearance of Lane Morris, the soldier Lane Morris in the news again. Joining me now from Salt Lake City, Utah, is retired U.S. Special Forces Sergeant First Class Lane Morris. Lane Morris joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Cotter was accused of throwing a grenade that killed U.S. Army Sergeant Christopher Spear and blinded Sergeant Lane Morris in one eye. The Canadian government has now uh, funded extremist jihadist activities. He's a American Special Forces unit who lost an eye in the battle, and he blamed the same grenade that killed Sergeant Spear for it. But the official report shows he was actually removed from combat before it was thrown, and yet he was on CTV News and in the Toronto Sun claiming otherwise. What do you make of this? Yeah, that's a good point. I actually did hear that on CBC as well as a uh, intro to an interview with him where they say uh, he's the soldier who was blinded by the grenade. I know Lane well. I've I've been to Utah, interviewed him. Uh, I interviewed him extensively before the book. Uh, we interviewed him for the documentary. And I'm surprised that he would have said that. Uh, I didn't actually see the CTV interview, but that's absolutely right. He was airlifted well before the grenade in question was thrown. Having said that, though, Omar Khadr did face five uh, charges under the military commissions. One was, of course, for Spears' death, which was called murder in violation of the laws of war. But there were four others, including conspiracy Uh, which has never been a war crime before 9-11 and one of the ones that's being challenged. But some of those charges would cover the firefight in general. And that's what he did plead guilty to in the guilty plea. And had it gone to trial, all those issues would have come up and Lane would have been a a witness at the hearing. I want to talk to you about language in this story because Cotter's story and, and the issue of Islamist terrorism, I think, reveals the importance of the language we use in reporting on these stories. You know, is he an illegal enemy combatant or child soldier? Do we call it torture or enhanced interrogation techniques? Even the term convicted terrorist enters a gray zone when you consider that his confession was was given under an illegal interrogation and his plea deal was perhaps his only means of repatriation. How did you navigate these terms over time? And, and were there any debates in your newsroom with colleagues about which terms were permissible? All the time. And I navigated it as best I could. I don't think I actually always succeeded, though, because of the reality of you only have so much space to tell a story. It's funny, in the newspaper business, we still, even though most of many of our readers are online, we still talk about news holes and what we can get into the print edition. So we're very limited. And quite frankly, I could write 5,000 words every time I wrote on some incremental change with Omar Khadr, and, and I didn't. So all the points that you raised, was it a conviction? What do we call the military commissions? It's tricky. And this child soldier issue was an issue for a long time, too. And if you, if you go back over the stories, you'll see that slowly media reports, both here and elsewhere, 
referred to him as a child soldier, where at the beginning they didn't. And there's no sort of clarification. It's 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 former child soldier Omar Cotter. I think you'll see that. I might be mistaken, but I think the Associated Press even says that. There's others. I, I think I've seen it in the New York Times. So this isn't really answering your question, except to say the language is really important, even in articles that are supposed to be without opinion and balanced. Every single word you choose for this story has some weight to it. Did you make any mistakes in your early reporting? Probably. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope not. I, I can't remember ever having any corrections issued or clarifications, which is what we do if a mistake is is highlighted. I don't recall that I've had any for the stories I've done, but I look back to who I was when I started covering this. And before 9-11, I was a crime reporter. And I went down to New York the night of September 11th and then became slowly our national security reporter. And I confess, you know, I was covering a purse snatching in Scarborough on September 10th and really didn't have any idea what Al-Qaeda was. So what I've learned in those 15 years, both from reporting here, but, but also I've been with our foreign department. So I've done reporting from Somalia and Yemen and Pakistan and, and all through Africa and Middle East. And, and that's just really taught me so, so much. So sure, when I, we br- I bring all that now to my re- reporting, plus having been to Guantanamo so many times. And I think, you know, that's context and knowledge I probably didn't have when I began. And so I hope, I hope I didn't make mistakes, but I certainly hope the stories today are a bit better than they were 15 years ago. Your documentary company, along with the Toronto Star and CBC, um, you fought the media ban on interviewing Cotter for a couple of years, and you lost. How did that ban affect your ability to report on him? It was tough. We thought going into that documentary that it would actually be pretty quick. He, he was back. We would get a jailhouse interview. We understood that he had agreed to it rather reluctantly, but he had agreed to it. And then to be blocked and told you can't uh, go in to interview him with these ridiculous reasons. I mean, I've done JLS interviews many times before, and it was frustrating. And Omar, it was so frustrating after so many years covering him in Guantanamo, where the rules we have to sign to get into the base. I, the Pentagon kicked me out once. I, I fought to get back. And all those years reporting on him, watching him, but not being allowed to talk to him, and then to be told by the Canadian government we the same rules applied for what was clearly, in my mind, a political decision. It was really, really frustrating. But in the end, as you said, we went to court, we, we didn't win our case. And then as luck would have it, right around that time, this very unique legal challenge was being launched by Nathan Whitling and Dennis Edney challenging his bail, which was something actually nobody had thought about at the beginning. His lawyers hadn't thought about, and it succeeded. So then he was released in some ways rather unexpectedly, and it was a chaotic time, but we had a few days after, and, and we could we could finish the documentary. We'd spent about two years, maybe two and a half years, interviewing everybody else involved in the story. He was our last piece of the documentary, which is kind of backwards because it was about him. And then we had perhaps one of the fastest editing turnarounds ever. Kathy Gulkin, our amazing editor, and uh, Ian Sitt and Jordan were terrific pulling it together because we edited in about three weeks to get it on air. 
at CBC and then a separate version a week later for Al Jazeera and then just a few weeks after that, a full-length 80-minute version that, that premiered at TIFF. Up until that, that moment, you just reported with the information and the documents that you had access to. A huge moment came when you received those photos of him lying in the rubble, curled up and wounded under debris. And it cast doubt on his ability to have thrown the grenade. And then another moment came when a report was actually accidentally leaked to reporters, including yourself in Gitmo Court, that revealed that there was a second survivor in the battle, again, leaving room for reasonable doubt. Yet, looking at it now, they don't really seem to enter the narrative very much. Uh, Neither of these bombshells really seem to have entered the collective understanding of his case. Did you expect moments like this to have a bigger splash? I did and I didn't. I think at the time they they did, but this case has been going on for so long. And even I forget facts that I covered nine years ago. So in some ways, I don't expect everybody to remember that. And that's why when I did that Twitter thread and then made it into a longer article for the the star, it was it felt good because I had to go back into my notes and say, oh, yeah, there was this and there was this and remind people of that. But that day we got the document. I'll never forget that one. We were actually in court. It was just a couple of us. Uh, Carol Rosenberg, one of the most dogged Guantanamo journalists ever uh, from the Miami Herald, myself and maybe one or two others. And it was just part of a briefing package that they gave journalists and they didn't mean to put it in there. And uh, They just stapled it. That's right. It was it was meant to go to, I think, one of the lawyers, but not to us. It was still considered a classified document. But eventually it would have been part, I'm sure, of the pretrial hearings, but not at that point. And perhaps it would have been redacted further. And Guantanamo is such a crazy place to report from. You're so on your your own there. I mean, it's it's really like another planet. And normally if that happened in a courthouse here, we'd go out, we'd get on the phone with our lawyers. What do we do? A lawyer would get down to the courthouse, argue you know, why this is, we should keep this and it's admissible. And Carol and I just sat down outside the courthouse (laughs) in the Cuban sun and the military commander's like, we have to have those back. And we're like, I don't think you do. I think, I think we need to keep these. And it was kind of this, this standoff that eventually we ended up being successful in, in keeping the documents and they, they redacted a bit and that's what we reported on. But there, yeah, there was always this doubt as to whether or not it was possible for him to throw the grenade and then, of course, the larger question is, is that a war crime? And and that's where it sort of gets complicated. But f- I know for a lot of Canadians, and I understand this, whether or not he actually was guilty of, of throwing that grenade, that fatally wounded Christopher Spear, is a huge issue. And we asked him that for the documentary. And I actually thought that was one of his most candid answers he gave us because his lawyers have said it's physically impossible for him to throw that grenade. And they cite the the photos that you raised where he's under the rebel. And then there's a report that we got that says there were two people alive. One was shot and killed. And then Omar Khadr was shot. So he wasn't the only one alive. And then there was going to be evidence about what the actual grenade was. And was it a Russian grenade or American grenade? There's there all this stuff that was supposed to come out if there'd been a trial. But when he when we interviewed him, I asked him that, and he went through the firefight, and he said, I don't know. I really don't know. He does admit to, at some point, he thinks he threw a grenade, but then he doesn't know if that's what interrogators told him. And again, had we gone to trial, there would have been a forensic psychiatrist who would have testified that 
after three hours of battle with a brain injury and the fog of war, it's fully plausible that he has no clue. But he could have told us, no, I didn't. You know, no, I didn't. My lawyers have showed me this. This is what they're saying. And he didn't say that. He said, I really have no idea if the memories that I have are are memories that, you know, interrogators plant and then I believe that to be true or if my, what my lawyers are telling me is true. I just hope I didn't. When you bring up images of Cotter, you, you might get him in the rubble. You might see videos of him uh, with the IEDs or these dubious photos from fringe sites of a young brown boy holding severed body parts that we are to assume is him. There are courtroom sketches to me that look intentionally demonizing, but there are also these childhood photos that are purely innocent. Using these images available, people have constructed versions of him to fit their politics. Either side has an arsenal of media. How do you as a reporter situate yourself in relation to these depictions, knowing that they can be used deliberately to manipulate the viewer. You know, Omar, that's such a great point. I've noticed even today, if you if you look at the way the photos are used in the last two weeks, there's some that he clearly is smiling. He looks like, you know, the all Canadian boy. And there's others where he's kind of scowling and the photos fit what the theme of, of the article is. And they fit the headline. They do. And I mean, that's not entirely unique. I think that happens all the time. You'll see that with Trump stories and others. But just to go back to your point with the court sketches, I'm good friends with the sketch artist from Guantanamo, Janet Hamlin, who did unbelievable work down there over the years with again, very limited resources. And she was constantly thinking about that. And so there were times where people would say, oh, he's, he's, he appears so menacing in that. And she would actually be wounded because she'd think, well, that's not what I meant in, in that moment. So it's a tough job. So I think sometimes we impart, um, or sometimes we, we think that sketch artists have a, a motive and, and they're not. They're actually just working really quickly. But there was some criticism at the beginning that we would always show only the photo of him as a young boy. I think he's even younger than than 15 in His that photo. photo. The passport photo. And for a long time, though, that's all we had. And those who criticize you know, later that that's what we kept doing, it's not true. Once we got the photos of him out of Guantanamo, which the Red Cross had taken, we would put those in. We would put this, this, the, I'm just talking about our own media outlet, but we would put a variety of photos. We often ran the frame grab from the video of him making the IEDs. But again, people, it's easy to criticize him and people like to, you know, say that you're trying to skew the facts. I remember in those early days also a very unsophisticated portrayal of who Omar Cotter and who his family was. They were of course, the so-called first family of terrorism. But as he came closer to repatriation and freedom, I started to see more consideration for his humanity, a moment that I think crescendoed with your documentary. How do you think the portrayal of Cotter evolved in the news over time? I do think that the turning point was when when he returned. And in part because of the documentary. I remember after people would see it, they'd say, wow, I really, really didn't know that story, which on one hand made me appreciate the power of a documentary and I was I was really happy. <laughs> on the other hand, I thought, well, I wrote a book and all these articles. <laughs> Haven't you been reading that? But that aside, I, I think why it was so impactful was 
because people got to hear from him directly. And it was the first time. And it wasn't just the documentary. It was that impromptu press conference that he had at the end of the driveway of Dennis Edney's home. And people have said since that, oh, that was so staged and the, and the questions were given to him in advance. And I was there that day. And it I know for a fact it wasn't. It was just that we were all camped out on this cul-de-sac of this small neighborhood in Edmonton. And it was clear that the media was not going to go away until he said something. So he came out and he was an incredibly articulate. And I think that impressed a lot of Canadians who have seen him only as a caricature on the both the far left and the far right, this political pawn that people use to support their own views. So finally, people could see him, they could hear from him. And I think a lot of Canadians, and I will say myself included, <laughs> were pretty tired of this story and just ready to give him a chance and to move on. It felt that way. I remember it even did. Peter McKay seemed to have uh, expressed some sympathy. But this moment that we're having right now, it's really touched a nerve. I mean, people are very angry that he's getting not just an apology, but money. And whether they have the facts right or wrong, many say it's out of respect for Sergeant Spears' widow and family. But I believe there's a sense of racism and scapegoating here, too, that Cotter's religion makes him a bigger target in this climate. Do the letters and responses you're getting from angry Canadians reflect that? Absolutely. They do. And... You're right. Uh, if the turning point was back in 2015, it's now turned again. And people are incredibly angry. And I do think they're it whipped is the, up. They're really, <laughs> that is the understatement. They're really, really whipped up. I mean, we've had to get police involved in a couple of the responses because they've been so, so threatening. And that's just, you know, for us, for reporting about it. So people are upset about the money. And a lot of people say they're upset about the apology, too. I, I'm not sure that's that's true. I, I wonder if he got the apology and a much smaller settlement or perhaps no settlement at all, which, of course, was never going to be an option for his lawyers. I wonder if it would have been the same reaction. I, I'm not sure. I think it's the amount. And it's not going to happen. I won't hold my breath for this. But I, I wish there was just a full accounting of what happened to get to this settlement. And of course, the Trudeau government is not going to come forward with that because politically, I don't think it would ever work for them. But I'd like to know from the people involved, was this a political decision or was this from the Department of Justice who's been fighting this case since 2004 and who, according to uh, the public safety minister, they've already spent $5 million. Did they say, listen, we're not going to win this legally. So it's just going to continue. And maybe that's what Canadians want. If that's the truth, maybe they, they're okay with fighting it, spending the extra money, perhaps having to give a larger settlement in the end, but they'll feel like they let the courts decide it. I don't know. And I'm not sure we're going to ever get entirely at that story. Do you think there's going to be anything left to report on this case? What is still left to answer? Well, we'll see what happens with the Utah settlement. That's the default settlement from Tabitha Spear, Christopher Spear's widow, and Lane Morris, the, the injured soldier, and their families. From the lawyers I've spoken to, not involved, uh, other lawyers, they say it's going to be really, really difficult to enforce that here for a variety of reasons. So I think that probably, from what they say, won't happen, but that will have to run its course through the, the courts. 
And then I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if I may say personally, I hope not. I would love to never write another Cotter story. But I certainly didn't anticipate the settlement would have been as big news as it was. Uh, the only other, I guess, outstanding challenge is the challenge to his actual Guantanamo conviction. There have been eight convictions in Guantanamo or guilty pleas, and the D.C. courts have overturned four. His is still ongoing, and I think it could be years still, but there is the possibility that a, a Washington court will say that it was an illegal conviction. Is that a question of his innocence necessarily? I mean, Cotter himself says he doesn't know if he threw the grenade. But I found that one question that's not asked enough in the news is whether he could have done it, whether he isn't guilty, as former prosecutor Sandy Garasino asked and tries to answer in the National Observer. Save for this one very well-written op-ed in an independent outlet, I get the sense that Canadian media has mostly given up on this question of his innocence. Well, innocence is a a difficult question because it's the two-prong question. One is... And this is what most Canadians want to know. Did he throw the grenade? And I don't think there's any way we are going to determine that. Certainly not now. And perhaps even at trial, that would have been, it would have been up to uh, a jury to decide. But I, I don't think even at trial, it would have been conclusive. But of course, the larger question, and this is what the appeals court in Washington will be dealing with, is is it a war crime? Are these five charges that he faced in Guantanamo considered a war crime? They weren't before. Killing a soldier in battle was not considered a war crime in the way that Omar Khadr has been charged with it. And also, he was charged, he was captured rather, in 2002. And the military commissions were drafted in Guantanamo. The Supreme Court of the U.S. threw that out as illegal, and they had to redraft it in 2006. And then when Obama came in in 2009, he amended it. So that's actually the law under which Omar Khadr pleaded guilty. And so the Washington court has to decide, can those laws apply to him essentially retroactively, because his alleged crime took place in 2002. So those are the kind of the big weighty questions that that court will deal with. And as I said, I anticipate months, if not years, till they settle on that. You've spoken to him since the settlement. What did he have to say and uh, about the settlement and the public out- outcry? What did he say that meant for his chances of moving forward? We spoke just briefly, actually. He's very, very careful in what he says. He's very, he's very thoughtful. He takes a lot of time to answer. And really, he didn't say a lot different from what he had said when we had our interviews back in 2015. He hopes Canadians can move on. He really wants to move on. He says he's still going forward with his studies in the fall. This is not going to change his life dramatically. But obviously, it makes it a lot easier to live, not have to worry about rent and payment. And he did say that he felt bad and he was sad that this had brought renewed pain, or I'm sure it's continuing pain, to the Spear family and to Lane Morris. And he felt bad that the news of that had sparked what it had. You know, living in Edmonton myself, Omar has become, in an odd way, a local celebrity. If you're out and about enough, you'll run into him. Sometimes I see people asking to take photos with him, which he declines. And I've had brief interactions with him, and um, I think, like many Edmontonians, I couldn't help but 
form a personal opinion on him. And it was that he was very thoughtful and modest and incredibly at peace in a way that I cannot even fathom, having suffered the way that he did. Could you help yourself from forming an opinion on him? I mean, I imagine he's been a big figure in your life. Would you say that he's someone that you care about as more than just a subject or a source? I don't want it to sound callous that I answer no, but there's been a lot of people that I've covered over the years, and you always try as a journalist to keep that line between a subject that you're covering and a friend. And a lot of times I've crossed it. Uh, One story in particular that I started in Mogadishu about a 17-year-old boy who had his hand and his foot amputated because he wouldn't join the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. And then he sought refuge and got refuge in Norway. I mean, Ismail has become a friend. I'm like a big sister to him. And so, sure, we've formed a friendship. With Omar Khadr, I've never had that and I've never sought that. I didn't think he really wanted to be friends with a journalist and I didn't really want to be friends with him. It was somebody that I had covered for so many years that I thought having a professional distance was important. Having said that, though, I was incredibly impressed by everything that you mentioned that you had as an impression of him when you've met. I was impressed when we interviewed him you know, quite intensely over those first few days of freedom. I've been impressed in the years since. And I think he is doing incredibly well considering the life he's had. I'm sure he has issues that none of us see, and he's got a tough life ahead. But I really do wish Canadians would give him a chance and just let him try and move on because this this type of vitriol and this pressure, it certainly is not going to help things. Michelle, thanks so much for doing this interview. Oh, thanks for having me, Omar. That was your episode of Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me anytime. I'm at omar at canadalandshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Canada Land. And if you want to make sure you never miss our news stories, like us on Facebook. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton and Jesse Brown, who will be back on Thursday with a new episode of Shortcuts. Special thanks to Samantha Power and the great folks at CJSR FM 88 Radio in Edmonton who generously let us use their studio. You can catch Candleland on CJSR every Thursday at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us.